This is episode 542 of the Macworld podcast for January 18th, 2017. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, your host and a senior contributor at Macworld. And uh, Susie Oaks, my regular co-host, the executive editor of Macworld, is off on vacation. A strange concept for me, a freelancer, but apparently people do take time off. And I salute you, people who take vacations. Uh, I'm here with a special guest this week. We're going to talk about security and privacy. And I've got Jonathan Zajarski, who's the developer of the app Little Flocker and an iPhone forensics researcher. Hello, Jonathan. 542 episodes. Wow. I know. How we you doing, can, Brian? Good. I was on episode one by accident. We discovered this. I'd forgotten. Uh, an intern at Macworld recorded the first podcast, and I was somehow the guest. Uh, oh, over a decade that dates ago. back to, yeah, what, like 1982? Yeah. We're talking, well, no, more at least, is uh, 10 plus years. So we did, because uh, we did this weekly, it's a weekly podcast, and uh, we were talking about Bluetooth, of course, uh, back then. Um, Jonathan, you're joining me from the great state of Maine, as I recall. <laughs> yeah, so far. So far. <laughs> it's still great. It's a great state. I lived there for a couple of years. Wonderful, wonderful place. And um, so we're going to talk about uh, your specialty. Um, things, things like a good timing. It's a little quiet in the uh, Apple world. There's not a lot of stuff going on. We have gotten over the MacBook Pro uh, uh, release and subsequent issues, and we're waiting for more news to break. Um, I've got one bit of follow-up for listeners, though. Uh, we talked last week and before that about consumer reports battery testing and some of the issues associated with that and just to update consumer reports uh let's see so if you don't remember the story which is hard to miss consumer reports tested the new macbook pro uh three different units that they had purchased at retail because that's how they do it uh, in december and they released the results saying we can't recommend it the language is very particular so they said they can't recommend the laptops because they found um like inconsistent battery life and unacceptably poor battery life, but they would get from between like three and a half hours to I think 18 hours on the same laptop. The 18 hours part is what baffles me as well. And uh, they released this and said, you know, we're working, we're, we're told Apple about it and we'll give them some more information. And Apple put out a statement at the time. Then, uh, after the new year, just a few days ago, Apple said, look, we found there was a bug in Safari in the developer mode. So if you have this setting enabled to disable caching, which is what Consumer Reports did in its settings, there was a bug we didn't know about that thrashed um, icon caching. So even though caching was disabled, it sounds like icons would get reloaded over and over again, which would drain battery life super fast, but only in certain circumstances. So, Consumer Reports, I, uh, I'm still not happy with their response. It's not that they were wrong to test in a controlled way by disabling caches and trying to prevent um, trying to prevent uh, caching from uh, not letting them simulate like normal network performance. Uh, but I don't feel like they investigated enough to figure out what was wrong in their testing setup. It turned out it was a bug. But uh, in the end, they've retested. They're finding consistently high battery life on MacBook Pros. They recommend them, and Apple has fixed the bug. So sort of all's well that ends well. But um, as a longtime reviewer for a couple decades, I would have broken everything down and figured out why it was my fault before discovering it was Apple's. And... Um, Kind of, uh, you know, Jonathan, this is one of these things where people need credibility. And I feel like Consumer Reports has told people, even though the bug wasn't theirs, they've said, we don't know enough about how we test 
to figure out when something's wrong. And even if we say something isn't good, a couple of weeks later, we might say it is good. I, I don't know. Does that come across? You're not inside the reporting side of things. Were, were you concerned about the Consumer Reports uh, credibility after this or their testing process? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like saying, oh, we, we tested and got horrible battery life. And oh, by the way, we jailbroke Safari uh, <laughs> and doing that. And we don't know what, what else we might have broken. But, uh, you know, they used a, a developer-only option. It's it's a hidden setting. Uh, it, there's no reason that any any average consumer would go and hunt down that, that feature to turn on. So if, if you're talking about real-world testing, you know, why would you even turn that lever on? It, it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I think if you're going to test something, you should test it out of the box. Use the default configuration. You know, we've, we've dinged software manufacturers for years on, you know, oh, your default configuration sucks. Um, you know, it doesn't do this, doesn't do that. And now that, you know, Apple's got a really nice default configuration, oh, let's go, let's go break everything first and then test. Yeah, and I've been using, uh, like, the Apache web server for a decade for decades now. Good God, I feel old sometimes. And there are ways in Apache, which is, you know, open source, easy to configure server. There are many other web servers out there as well, where you can force caching, you can set a property so that, uh, I mean, a consumer reports ostensibly did this so they could use the same 10 web pages fed off a local server on their local network and not introduce the variables of internet you know, delays of broadband usage. So they don't do a real world test so much as they simulate the idea of people loading pages that haven't been cached. And I, I don't even know if I like the testing methodology, but at least it's consistent. So you can compare apples uh, to apples for battery life, but you don't have to do that on the browser side. You can do that on the server side with a very simple thing that makes the browser believe that every page is unique and has to be loaded in full. And then you could have a completely stock uh, unmodified configuration that would be exactly like a consumer would. So, dunno. But the you know the resolution is um, I, I don't worry. I don't care if Apple didn't sell a few laptops. That's their business, and it's you know that's that's be, this, neither here nor there. It's more like um, can we be credible objective sources of information if we're not engaging in the kind of rigor that lets people trust us? So. Boo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got you to know what you're doing if you're going to uh, test this stuff. Yeah. You know, but even even more importantly, you know, one of the things that that went mostly underreported, everybody who initially had a problem with the new MacBook Pros also reported back that Apple jumped on it and fixed it, and you know, got it uh, to a satisfactory. Uh, you know, place. This is like a one by one thing too, right? Because people have, I've heard people getting like three and a half hours of battery life. And some of those folks, uh, like Phil Schiller, uh, Apple's uh, worldwide head of uh, marketing, I think is his title currently. um, He talked about working with people one-on-one. You have a new MacBook Pro. Are you having any battery life issues with it? Uh, I I do have a new MacBook Pro. I got the, um, I shelled out for this one. I think I got everything except for the two terabyte because I, oh I only needed one and a thousand bucks for a terabyte. It's just <sighs> ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, remember when they used to say disc is cheap. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean at first, uh, and I've tweeted about it a couple of times. I, at first I did have some battery issues and I reached out to Apple and, um, you know, I don't want to get into what they did. Cause I, like you said, it's like, it's a one-off for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'll say, you know, for me, they resolved the problem. It took a little bit of time, a little patience, but we got figured out, got it resolved. Uh, and now I'm getting, you know, I do heavy dev work. I do VMs. I do, you know, Xcode. I might have five Xcode projects open at once. I'm still pushing maybe eight hours. Uh, you know, that's amazing. That's incredible. Uh, you know, a lot of it is, is in just how you've got it set up too. I mean, I could probably push more 
or I could probably whack it down to four if I really, you know, if I jacked up the brightness and, uh, you know, there's a lot of different factors that, that go into your battery consumption. If you use some of these tools out there, um, you know, the free utilities, iStat Pro and all that, I mean, they'll kind of give you a, a little bit of an indication based on, you know, what's drawing a current. I mean, you can kill a battery real fast if you try it. Um, I'm just stunned. But, eight know, hours is great given what you're doing. I mean, eight hours would be fa- I, that's that's a fantastic battery life. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I'm I'm real impressed with it. Um, you know, I, I could, there's a couple tricks I could give you. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, you know, you don't have to turn the brightness all the way down, but I mean, I usually run my brightness at maybe sixty percent, something like that. That's well, not that low, even. Yeah, no, I mean, if it's really dark, obviously I go lower, but you know, you don't keep it at at full blast. The the display on these new ones is is I think it's like fifty eight percent or sixty eight percent brighter, so that's going to draw a lot more current if you've got it jacked all the way up. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things I found too, and I don't know if it's a software issue or or what, but when you have the automatically adjust brightness uh, checkbox turned on, sometimes it'll jack your brightness up. Um, like brightness for me, I'm perfectly comfortable with it at, you know, 60% of the room. It might try to jump it up to 70, 75%. Ah, okay. So that's one of them, you know, I mean, if you're not using your Bluetooth, you can obviously squeeze an extra, maybe half hour or something out of that by turning it off. Um, you know, and you can kind of, you can see what's going on if you've got some of these, uh, you know, better utilities installed. If, if you go to, you know, run some program and all of a sudden you're, your CPU utilization is just, you know, off the charts. Uh, you know, it's you can't really blame Apple for that, right? No, they've got the new architecture that's supposed to help um, with uh, with managing that, so that it's more battery efficient too for certain kinds of tasks. Um, I, uh, um, oh no, I'm sorry, that's the that's not I'm sorry, that's not out yet though. That's one of the and so that's a strategy on the uh, I'm I'm conflating two different things. There's a strategy, a multi-core strategy that is not on the laptops yet, but there's different there's a, a different approach there. Um, I just had I bought a, a 12-inch MacBook in um, April 2015, the first generation, and I just got a service battery message on it. I just ponied up for I always buy the Apple Care warranty for laptops because for me they always have issues and it's covered within three years. So I went into the Apple store a few days ago and they're going to replace the uh, battery, the keyboard, which is highly worn after 20 months. And I don't use it full time. Keys are like the entire etching on the top is worn away. I don't think these keyboards were that first uh, pass was as great as these later ones they've come up with. And they may replace the SSD and the display. So, um, you know, the ship of Theseus uh, metaphor about, uh, um, the ship goes out from um, Thebes or wherever Theseus is from Athens, I forget. And while they're at sea, they replace every part of the ship. There's nothing left. And when they come back, is that the same ship? That's what's going on with my MacBook. Like the aluminum frame may be the same around the keyboard. And every maybe the motherboard will be the same, but I'm not clear with the SSD. They may, I think the way it's integrated, I think they have to replace the motherboard if they replace the SSD. I don't think yeah, they unsolder. So I may have basically like the bottom metal part. Uh, will be the same, and everything else will be different, and I will have my ship of Theseus MacBook back. <laughs> well, obviously, you're lying if you say you got a brand new MacBook because you do have that piece of metal there. I know exactly right. right. It's just like that's right. I get a little bit a little bit of patina on that. Well, let's get into the security stuff. I mean, the t- you know the timing is um, my preamble is this: uh, whenever we talk about it on the podcast, whenever I write about it, uh, and and you're welcome to describe your own take. This is not a prescriptive thing for you, of course. Uh, is that um, we, you know, we, when you live in a democracy, you consider yourself privileged, and there is a little bit of smugness about being in a democracy. And what we've found since.
since the revelations by Edward Snowden, and even well before that, is that democracies surveil uh, their people, often in different ways and sometimes for different reasons and using different techniques than what we would consider repressive dictatorships, and to different ends. You know, the outcomes can be different for, um, you know, a million people may face a certain kind of oppression because of surveillance in a dictatorship, and maybe it's a hundred in a democracy, but, you know, the, the effect can be the same for those people. So when we talk about techniques that help you defend against uh, unwarranted like literal unwarranted and also the figurative, like no reason to intrusion into our lives by, by governments. We're not talking just about if you live in China, here's what happens to you. If you live in Iran, Iraq or wherever, um, North Korea <laughs> with its own internet, it's, um, you know, in the United States in France, in uh, Israel and all these countries that are democracies by whatever definition you want to make it. Um, they're also surveilling, often doing mass surveillance. Um, you know, we know the NSA is vacuuming up a lot of stuff. We don't know exactly how they handle it or what they do with it, but uh, there's a reason. And this is why all the major uh, internet companies that transfer data and store data on behalf of users has tightened up every single thing they do, like intra data, data center uh, transfers. Google had to tighten how it sends data between its data centers. It's why Apple uh, refused to uh, give in to the FBI without a legal fight and that the FBI ultimately dropped about uh, decrypting a um, or aiding in the creation of a tool to decrypt the San Bernardino uh, shooter's phone, work phone. Um, so that's my long preamble. So none of this is, hey, uh, America is terrible or China is terrible, whatever. It's more like this is an issue of your own personal position of um, you know freedom of information, freedom from intrusion. And most of this applies to protecting yourselves against uh, criminals. And against, um, you know, let's say domestic issues too is there's enormous amount of uh, domestic snooping between people in relationships, between families. And this is also a tool to improve your ability to uh, be private even in the comfort of your own home from other family members. So that's my preamble, Jonathan. I don't know if you have a different uh, take, which you're welcome to share, of course. You know, I've, I've seen both sides of it, and I'm I'm not nearly as eloquent as, as Edward Snowden or or you, Glenn. Um, huh. You know, but I, I mean, I've I've heard it from uh, you know as a private citizen. Obviously, I'm I'm very concerned about my privacy, and I think that you know what our government has done is has definitely overstepped our constitution in a lot of ways. I've also heard from directly from a lot of my, you know, uh, friends and, uh, you know, other people that I've worked with in, in government and different, different areas about what the real threats are, nothing classified or anything like that. But, you know, you sit down over a few beers and, and you just talk about what, what the government is up against, you know, uh, all the way back from, you know, nine 11, I just, I get the feeling we still today don't even know how to how to identify our adversary in in what I guess they're calling cyberspace now or potato space, right? <laughs> um, so we we still haven't got it all figured out. And and I remember back in in uh, at nine eleven in, in two thousand one when um, when Bush said you know, we're going to make sure that this never happens again. Um, and there was a big thing with, with John Ashcroft at the time. And like, they were completely sold out to the idea of making sure, you know, that this never happens to the country. Again. And, and if you think about it, you know, the only way to make sure something doesn't happen, like if it's, if it's on your computer system, say, I'm never going to let a process fork again, you've obviously got to control everything. You've got to be able to monitor everything. 
And, and I'm not saying I agree with it at all, but <clears throat> that seems to be, you know, where we've where we've gone is, you know, we, we don't know our adversary well enough to be able to tell exactly, you know, who to target, where to target, when to target. So they're still targeting everything as far as I know and collecting as much as they can. And unfortunately, you know, for us, that seems to have broken into attacking our own uh, citizens attacking our own companies, uh, you know, like you said, with with uh, tapping the uh, the uh, trunks that Google used um, to, uh, uh, you know, between their data centers, uh, it's it's just ridiculous that we're we're committing espionage against our own citizens, essentially. And yeah, that's a scary thought. So, you know, and in my field, obviously, you know, the the reality is people, you know, will tell you, well, our country spies. That's our job, right? Um, so figuring out what's right and what's wrong in that in that whole uh, arena is enormously challenging um, and I think you've got some some good on both sides you know but uh, you know at the end of the day I don't like where we're at at all I think we've you know gone way too far uh, with this um, so you know I'm still trying to figure it out like everyone else is I, I know that most of your listeners are probably law-abiding citizens, uh, you know, who <laughs> I'm are sure legitimately, they are. <laughs> right, who are legitimately concerned, you know, about about their personal privacy. And so, you know, in, in the greater scheme of mass surveillance, I think the real question is, you know, that obviously, if you're targeted by NSA, you might as well hang it up. You're 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 dead. You're you're owned, right? But most people aren't worried about hiding. <clears throat> from being targeted. Uh, you know, most people are, are worried about just protecting their own privacy in the midst of this mass collection and other technologies that are being used ag- against us on a mass scale and how to protect yourself from that, as well as, you know, nation states. And, yeah, that's uh, a, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that I'm, I'm absolutely like, I want law enforcement to use every single tool on their disposal to the utmost to solve cases of whatever importance they are. You know, if it's, if it's, a, you know, global terrorism, if it's, um, you know, a local murder, if it's a domestic abuse case, if it's, um, you know, whatever it is, like, I, I absolutely support that. I think it's this mass issue is that I don't want my information to be readily available just in case I committed a crime, because that seems to be the opposite of some of the founding principles of America. It's like, you might be a criminal. Uh, you know, they're going through this debate in England, and it's not even a debate. It's just kind of this ongoing crisis, which is um, – and there it centers around, uh, to some extent, copyright violation and child pornography. And it's like there's no human being who should be able to make a moral argument that child pornography is a good thing. Like we can – that is actually one of the few things I think that around the world is largely almost – not universally, but largely agreed upon by most human beings that child pornography and the exploitation of children is a bad thing. Right. So, and you know, I'm not going to have an argument. Again. I'm not, I'm not going to entertain whether or not, but let's, you know, let's pause it. We all, we, most of us believe this. Um, but the idea that because someone might engage in child pornography, all communications should be monitored in a, a way that law enforcement could always get access to everything just in case doesn't actually solve the problem because it produces false positives. It produces this privacy violation. It um, doesn't actually target the networks that are engaged in this um, because it's looking at, uh, you know, 
yes, needles in the haystack work. If you have mass amounts of data, you can search through them and the tools get better and better. But it's this um, notion of, yes, law enforcement, I want them to do everything they can to solve crimes, you know, especially the more severe crimes. Uh, no, I don't think all uh, information owned by people should be instantly, constantly available to law enforcement in order to facilitate that. And somewhere in the middle, it's like, well, how do you let, how do you create a key, a golden key <laughs> that would let law enforcement magically unlock only the information you can? And, and that's not what they need. And that's not feasible either. So, well, that's, right. that's part it's, of it. It's, yeah. it's like putting a, a security camera in everybody's bedroom, you know. Uh, but we'll just, only it, look it, if we think a crime is committed, but we're recording all the footage anyway. Exactly. Right? You know, and, and when you're not, when you're busy doing that, you know, it's kind of like, you got a leak in your boat somewhere, so you're going to refinish the whole boat instead of going and targeting the area that mm-hmm. you know has the actual leak, the, the problem in it. So, you know, it, we're wasting a lot of resources sticking cameras in everyone's bedroom when you know in reality we're we're completely ignoring you know that that one targeted area where we know there is a specific. Um, you know, crime occurring and, and whatnot. And you, and I just you imagine know, if they'd spent the if they spent the money, the hundreds of billions of dollars or more that's you know in black budgets and some of it's some of it we know about, some of it's on secret budgets that aren't broken out and disclosed. If they'd spent that money on like good good style police work, building networks, teaching people to speak languages that are used in terror, you know, not used in terrorism, that's a terrible way to say, but languages that uh, that are in short supply in America, but are frequently used by some of the terrorists around the world that we don't have all the assets for. If they'd spent, you know, a trillion dollars on that, we might have a different set of national security than the trillion dollars or whatever the amount was spent on massive surveillance to find little bits and pieces. Right. And, I, you know, I think most people support the government doing a lot of uh, targeted type police work. Uh, I think a lot of Americans even support our government being in the espionage business. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Russia's spying on us. We, we darn well ought to be spying on Russia and China and everybody else. Uh, you know, it's it's it, there's there's that line there. And, and I, I still don't think anyone has been able to agree on where that line should be, you know, between there's there's us and then there's, you know, the opinions that a lot of uh, government officials hold. And yeah. there, there's just there's got to be some some give somewhere, uh, you know, the targeted um, operations that we've seen have been wildly successful when they actually do yeah, yeah. work. When they, right. When they are saying like, we, you know, we need to reach these specific people or you look at the situation in Belgium where the, the terrorists weren't even using any real inf- you know, encryption or information hygiene or whatever. It turns out that in the heat of the moment and trying to build networks that are disparate, it's really hard to get everybody to encrypt everything and, and better police work would have helped. Well, let's get into some of the nitty gritty of this too, as I know I've been talking philosophy and, and, elucidating your opinion on it too but um what so what's the biggest risk people face today i mean we can talk about like criminals criminal networks like ransomware things like that which we know is uh the largest growing uh portion of malware out there though largely not affecting the mac world yet um but also from you know unwarranted government intrusion like what risks are people facing now that they should be protecting against it seems from if you if you take the the current news as kind of you know the authority on it seems like phishing is still still the number one threat to everybody oh, man. because yeah. pe- people are still stupid. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it, everyone's gone down to uh, low budget uh, types of attacks, and we're talking about uh, an attack by Russia here that that got into uh, you know DNC systems off of phishing. Not, you know, know. some zero days you never heard of, uh, you know, phishing, somebody, you know, going, typing their their password in a site that's not real. And and 
we're getting a little bit better on, you know, technologies that we can put in the browsers and things like that. Um, but, you know, most of the threats are still tremendous, tremendously low budget. Uh, you know, and beyond phishing, look at some of the attacks that have occurred on Mac. It's been trojanized versions of software that have been installed up on websites. You know, people download an app thinking it's something else. So a lot of it is still very low tech, very voluntarily, you know, installing this or clicking on this link. Uh, you know, we haven't really seen a whole lot of, you know, what you would call like uh, NSA-esque type of exploits <laughs> out there uh, being used in the wild. Uh, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of let down by that because it, it would make for some some better honeypot footage, you know. But um, yeah, I think a lot of it is is just the basic street smarts of the internet and we've got a whole new generation now that's that's on board and making sure that they understand online that, that you know how to be safe and and you know what the different threats are that's the first step but obviously there's a lot more on top of that but man we got to educate some people yeah it's tricky because um we get the uh what some people call kind of a post-computer literate generation is everything just works you don't have to this is the you know my my dad's generation he wasn't a big car you know he didn't go to monkey around with cars it was more like a little bit older than him it was well if you don't know how to disassemble your engine clean it and reassemble it you shouldn't be driving a car that philosophy you know and i i'm not i'm the person who's like well you know i used to be able to solder components on computers and disassemble them and i can still take i just replace the battery my wife's you know unibody macbook pro and i feel like a big man right but but the well, antivirus used to come with a debugger so oh, that geez. you know the customer could sit there and reverse engineer your malware there we go and so the, but that's the thing is we have generation that isn't it's um and it's i think it's a good thing that you don't have to learn the inner workings of everything to get the results you want and use something as a tool but it means also people are much more naive because they don't everything looks the same to them. Like fishing looks the same as everything else because they're not used to uh, breaking down what's going on because everything kind of looks the same. They're at like that webpage level. Um, I think that's a good, a good reminder, right? One fishing link could take it down. I, you know, I don't store, uh, I don't really use IMAP. I download all my mail. I mean, I use IMAP a bit and I use pop mail in fact as well, but I ultimately like every day I sweep my email off a server so that I'm not storing it up at Gmail or a host somewhere where if someone broke into it, they could, uh, you know, retrieve like Podesta or John Podesta. Um, there are however many years of email I've got, uh, host there, I think that's Still rare. Risotto recipe? Yeah, I know. My res- I, I have a very good risotto recipe. I can make it in a rice cooker. In fact, I've got well, a way tell to do everybody. It. That's right. Um, to, they'll yeah. break it in my email. But I mean, that's an unusual thing. But so you know, we uh, you created Little Flocker in part because of the threat of ransomware, as opposed to the actuality, right? Like we haven't we've seen attempts to get ransomware on the Mac, but nothing that's you know spread in any substantive way that we've seen, or in, in any viral way at least. Um, so there's there's a lot more potential, you'd say, than actuality of, of these kinds of things. I, I think the threat's real. And, you know, we've seen a few variants out there. The, the, the malware that scares me the most are things like Xcode Ghost, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Someone trying to tell people sorry, about that. Oh, yeah. So let's explain that because that was uh, some months ago. Um, that was the... Uh, uh, the version that was hosted on Chinese servers because it's hard often to get, it's not even the blocking of the great firewall of China. It's hard to get sufficient bandwidth sometimes between China and the rest of the world for like massive downloads. So people in China were downloading Xcode that was essentially like cracked and um, had malware in it. So when you compiled, it compiled the malware into your apps, right? For, for non, right. for non Apple app stores, for jailbroken iPhones. 
And if I recall, there was also some type of backdoor that, that allowed the attacker to even potentially steal the developer's keys, which oh was God, uh, that sounds right. particularly scary. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as, a, as an App Store developer, uh, you know, and, and now, you know, not only am I an App Store developer, but now I've got the key that you need to sign kernel code, which is a separate key that Apple only gives out to kernel developers. So you're talking about some real privileged access that, you know, you could potentially have just by stealing, you know, my certificates or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, VMware certificates or whoever. Um, So, you know, the idea of of making off with my developer credentials, it's not so much just that, that that one person is targeted. But their certs, if they don't know that they're stolen, uh, you know, could potentially uh, affect uh, a lot of people outside of that without them even knowing it. Right. And this, uh, is, so, this has happened recently, by the way. I was reading about um, GoDaddy discovered after like six months they'd made a change to their code in issuing uh, web, certi- web uh, SSL certificates um, for uh, websites. And they had introduced a weakness that let a certificate respond correctly for like the local address. It was this, I can't remember the exact detail, but it took six months for them to figure it out. And it was only because of some error. And then they found that they'd issued, you know, 8,000 certificates that had a flaw. They had to recall some of them. The whole thing was a mess. And it, so it wasn't even, they didn't know they weren't giving out their private key, but they didn't know they were issuing certificates that were potentially uh, would allow, um, you know, a malicious party to misidentify themselves on the web as a different website. Right, right. So this and thing you happens. have had uh, a lot of instances, you know, and it's been a lot more isolated with Mac. You know, um, if you think about the, uh, was it the transmission BitTorrent client uh, yes. got hacked? I think it was twice. It was at least once where it, it, there was no, there were no real exploits used. It's just the user downloaded transmission thinking it was transmission. And it was, you know, just some Trojanized version of it, which had, I think it was Keyed Ranger that was uh, part of part of that payload. Uh, and then you've had a, a few, there was what, OSX Mokes and a few others that have been sort of smuggled into third-party apps. And, you know, I, I think those are the ones that are going to be the most low-hanging fruit for end users. They're going to potentially run into those. Um, I think the, the most common use for Little Flocker is probably more along the lines of misbehaving applications and uh, the privacy aspect. So you've got you got two pieces to uh, you've got security and you've got privacy, right? And um, <clears throat> we we've always been debating on how to you know separate these two. Uh, Susan Landau um, made a great point once about security being more geared towards the um, outside facing. Uh, you know, you protect yourself against external threats mm-hmm. uh, and privacy being more toward protecting data from other things that are in your system. Uh, I think that was in, in her last book. Oh, uh, that's great. Oh, I never, that's a wonderful distinction. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really great uh, way to, uh, to define both of those. Uh, so, you know, once you've got uh, software running on your system, how can you protect yourself from that software uh, going in, you know, nosing around your documents folder, nosing around your downloads. Uh, and today's software is a lot nosier than it used to be. Uh, a lot of people are complaining about, uh, you know, various utilities out there like Dropbox and whatnot and just how it, it wants so much power over your computer. And for most people, you know, you download something like Microsoft Word, let's say, um, or after you've bought it legally, of course. Uh, and it, the only thing that it should have access to really is your documents folder, you know, any of your Word docs, for example. 
if it starts poking around in your pictures folder for no reason, uh, you, you kind of want to, you know, block on that behavior or you want to know about that behavior at least. And, and it, it's kind of funny because PowerPoint does something similar to that. Uh, just from happenstance, from having this weird bug, it actually loads the webcam camera components uh, when it shouldn't. And, um, you know, so little things like that um, uh, are picked up by Little Flocker. Uh, if you've got a, uh, an application that comes with, like, the Mac install Trojan, uh, the adware uh, crap that, that comes with a lot oh, of stuff. Yeah, your yeah. Kid, your, yeah, your kid might download that, uh, you know, some Minecraft add-on or something like that. Uh, at least you get you get a pop-up. You get a warning, and you have the ability to to block that. Uh, access. So, oh, yeah. Let, yeah. let me back up one second too for listeners. We've talked about Little Flocker a few times on the podcast before. Um, the, you know, this is part of a category of apps that are designed to monitor stuff that's happening on the system. So, Little Flocker monitors uh, files. Block Block monitors um, is a neat app that monitors changes in persistent uh, uh, re- loading settings. So, things that try to install stuff that will run at startup, so they respawn themselves when you reboot. There's Little Snitch, which is a network monitor. It's not exactly Exactly a firewall. I think it can be used kind of like a firewall, but it sort of tells you what everything's talking about. There's um, tools that are specifically for monitoring audio video input uh, so that you know something's accessing um, the, you know, the video camera, your webcam or your built-in camera. And so Little Flocker's job is uh, it, it's file-specific or location-specific access per app and so it's kind of cool you know i was it, acrobat is so terrible as is um as are most adobe apps are so poorly behaved flash i run flash and i will get sometimes eight to twelve little flocker pop-ups because it runs Perl, it runs a shell script it runs some copy operation it's touching weird locations and um the idea uh is you know ransomware the way it works is that it touches um, – it deals only with your documents. It's not trying to do something at a system level. After it invades, it encrypts user space documents which are, or user space files, which are things that are under your control when you're logged in. So ransomware is particularly insidious because it doesn't need escalated privileges after it first runs to cause the harm. It encrypts those files. You run the, you know, try to open them. It tells you you got to pay X Bitcoin to get the key to unlock it. And so Little Flocker, I know one of your goals is – this is a way to prevent an arbitrary program from touching any file at once on a system without being alerted at least first, or from preventing uh, a known program that might have a Trojan in it, or you know, you download a version of transmission, say that's got a Trojan, that starts touching all kinds of files it's not allowed to. So I use Little Flocker to restrict access per app. Uh, the first time it runs, starts doing stuff, I'll be like, that will never need to be scoped beyond my home folder's music folder. And so uh, if it ever asks for anything else, I can evaluate it and wonder if it's a proper use. I can say you can do it one time. <laughs> you can do it until restart, but I don't have to give unlimited access to every app to touch every user file or setting. And, um, you know, even though I have not had ransomware infect my machine, it does give me a little comfort to know this is in place. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was the, the transmission malware that that tried to do that, if I recall, it, where it not only tried to encrypt everything, all, all of your documents, but it even tried to grab your your time machine backups uh, and encrypt oh, those too. Oh, that sounds right. Yeah, it's I I luckily uh, that yeah it kind of came and went really fast and. And that's tricky. I mean, folks, people, you know, uh, this is a long-standing vector is software that gets downloaded off a server. People will try to break into the server, replace the software with uh, malware-infected software, 
in such a way that the developer hosting it doesn't know. And um, that's the often the easiest path, path of exploit. Uh, even when developers are, you know, they could be really sophisticated, but their host, uh, they're not running their own servers, their host could have some exploit or be socially engineered, and that can happen. So um, this is the advantage, of course, of signed apps. Like if you're using – the transmission is a, is a non-signed app, isn't it? That's the No, I think it actually is signed now, but it doesn't matter because uh, the uh, the malware author, I believe, had even signed the, the replacement app. Oh, the I malware, see. Yeah, the malware wasn't signed as far as I recall, but I think they had some, you know, and it's, it's really easy to get a, a cert from Apple for, you know, just, just a, any old app uh, exactly. you want to write. But you, they'll they'll you revoke burn, it. Yeah, you burn it when you're a developer, who, a malicious developer, and you do that. But for a period of time, it'll work a, a, an actual app. And Little Flocker reveals that too. It talks, it has, if you're looking at the details, it tells you if this is a signed app and who signed it and so forth. So, um but yeah, so that's, I mean, so this is a big category. It's like this is keeping, like being aware. And then there's a training aspect too. So you don't, I'm not constantly, Little Flocker isn't coming up all the time. The first time I run something, I have to answer some questions essentially. Like it'll give me pop-up. Do you want it to access this? Yes, you know, allow, deny. Do I want it to do it always? Do I want to create a better path? Like I want it to access not just this one file or location, but a series of paths. Um, and Block Block, the same thing. Like Block Block is only going to, trigger when you're, uh, say, running an installer that's going to change startup behavior. Um, little snitch, you can it comes with rules and you can train it. So there is a, a pain point in getting started. But once you've trained things, you get few. I mean, I get, you know, 1% of the dialogues uh, with little flocker now that I did, um, you know, when I started. And uh, but I have the peace of mind that everything that's happening is routine stuff too. So it stands out like the training stage. Nothing stands out because I'm kind of going through all these dialogues. I'm trying to pay attention at this point when I get a prompt, I'm like, Oh, this is serious. I should look at this carefully because I'm not being warned all the time. You're not wearing me down, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, now I've expanded too. So we're not just looking at files, but uh, if, if, if an application tries to uh, sniff your network traffic, for example, it, it uh, talks to like dev, one of the dev BPF, Berkeley packet filter devices, and and we will block on that. So, uh, if you run Wireshark, eh, Wireshark, for example, oh, Wireshark, uh, yeah, you know, you'll get a yeah, which is a great tool. You'll get a pop up the first time telling you that Wireshark wants to intercept your network traffic. Uh, and there's some things that I can't control, um, but I can at least warn you about. Uh, like if you've got an application, and and I've seen some apps actually do this um, legitimately, but it at least gives you the notification. Like, for example, VMware uh, creates a keyboard tap. It intercepts all of your keystrokes so that it can relay it to the virtual machine uh, that you're using. That's cool. You can click ignore. Um, but there are other uh, apps that are keyloggers that use the same facilities. And if all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're getting ready to type in something confidential or password or whatnot, and you have a, a warning popping up that, you know, there is some process that's listening to your keystrokes, then, you know, at least you can figure out what's going on. At least you can avoid, uh, you know, typing in whatever you're going to type in until you, you know, can answer that question. Oh, is it, was it VMware or, or and why, hey, why is this thing called Keylogger? No, I, <laughs> I got that actually call it that, but I'm surprised what it's asking for, um, for what's, what keyboard uh, access is being required when I <laughs> now too. It, you learn a lot about how software is written, how badly some of it functions when you have these things monitoring, uh, monitoring actions. I think uh, Google now has a feature. I think it's in, I think I have Google in Chrome is if you type in passwords, it warns you 
um, that you've typed in a password that's related to something. I think, oh, so you type in your Google password in a Chrome browser that's not on a Google page, it will say, hey, do you realize you're about to send your Google password? And it can do that by storing a, a hash, I'm sure, not the actual password, of course, um, and checking against it. But in that kind of feature, like knowing being more aware, um, but not all the time. Like you, this is the problem with like the, um, the, you know, I don't even know if we still use them anymore. The, uh, color coded levels of awareness, you know, orange and, uh, beige and whatever they were that were set after nine 11. Uh, you just, you know, when you're always in red, you don't pay attention when you're always in a state of awareness, you, you drop down into a state of, um, not paying attention. And, uh, so that it's a, it, there's an advantage of things that tell you only when, there's something that you should pay attention to. Um, I think that's a that's it. You know, I wanted to move another area. I don't want to. We're not. We usually um, we don't want to go too long today. But I want to go into um, secure communications. So this is moving from file and activ- file network and activity monitoring of all sorts. Um, secure communications. So there's all of these different approaches people can face that are, can deal with, and this is one of the biggest categories that gets you into both like criminal interception and government inter- you know mass surveillance interception as opposed to the issue of you know targeted or warrant based interception. Um, things like WhatsApp, iMessage, and Signal for person-to-person secure messaging, um, VPN for uh, network-based, you know, protecting your whole local network segment out the internet, and even things like using um, secure connections, always going with SSL TLS to an email server or to a web server. This is kind of a huge area I need to talk about all at once, but, you know, where what should people be doing here? Where are the risks um, they should be avoiding? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big field for someone who is uh, not in tech, right? Yeah. There's this giant football field size of, of holes that you've got to plug, you know, in your computer. Uh, so it, it makes sense to you and I, um, I guess for, for the average person, the, the first thing I would do, and I, I didn't develop this, but it's a cool tool that everybody uses. It's called little snitch <clears throat> on Mac. And that'll at least get you down from a football field size problem to a much more controllable, like a little swimming pool problem, because you're able to control the flow of what goes in and out of your computer, uh, what goes in and out of the network. Uh, you can you can say, okay, I'm I'm going to allow uh, you know my email, uh, for example, to go and and, and connect to these ports uh, and check mail, and I'm going to allow my browser. Um, but if something else pops up that you don't know about, like if you've installed this uh, malicious version of transmission or or Xcode or whatever, and it tries to call home, uh, you know it, it does the same thing that Little Flocker does basically, and, and gives you a warning and and the ability to to stop that, to control that, that access. So I guess that's the first thing is changing it, changing the playing field. So you're, you're, you've gone from a flood to a little trickle of data that you have to really manage. And then once you get down to a trickle, it's, it's a lot easier. You, you obviously you want to encrypt everything going in and out to the extent that you can, what that looks like, you know, for, for us, uh, I mean, you've got, you want to control, not just, how the data is encrypted, but how is the data, uh, for lack of a better word, obfuscated so that mm-hmm. yeah, your endpoints aren't blatantly obvious to someone who's eavesdropping on your network. If I connect and check my mail, for example, uh, it, there is a connection from your computer to Gmail or Apple or whatever. Uh, and anyone who's eavesdropping on your network already knows all your endpoints. They know what systems you're communicating with. Uh, you know, potentially that that leaves you vulnerable in, in a, uh, more than one way. Uh, if you're trying to 
uh, you know, really protect your privacy from, let's say, someone with a warrant who can go and get your email. Well, one of the best ways to avoid that happening is for whoever it is to not know who your, you know, uh, who your email provider is, or you know, what other websites you use, what other services to use. So, uh, using something like VPN uh, will funnel all all your traffic uh, going out of your computer to the VPN provider. Uh, you know, I, there are a ton out there. I, don't ask me which one to use because I'm I'm in the middle of a family quarrel with my VPN provider. But oh no, um, that's <laughs> uh, yeah. The VPN thing is interesting because um, so I, I think it's widely recommended to use it, but it doesn't protect your data. It's not an end to end thing, right? If you're using WhatsApp for messaging, you have all the security uh, switches flipped. I've got a column coming out about the. Um, uh, article that appeared in the Guardian newspaper last week that was very inaccurate and misleading and also sort of out of date. But if you've got WhatsApp configured correctly and you're talking to someone else, that's end to end. Both people um, are the only, two people in the conversation are the only ones who can see the messaging under the current way the system is built. But a VPN, it encrypts all your data from your whatever device you're on out to some data center somewhere where the VPN termination happens. There's a server. And from there, your data goes out in the clear. And now some of the data you're using could also be encrypted, but also all that metadata is suddenly available. What sites am I connected to? But you could VPN to other countries. So some, there have been recommendations that sometimes, and I know, um, I don't know, I'm curious about your take on it. People concerned about us surveillance or, or, you know, or, or misuse of surveillance, mass surveillance, they will VPN off to Sweden or Iceland or somewhere else where they believe the government has more controls over what's accessed uh, or or controlled, uh, sorry, more control over um, uh, prohibiting unwarranted or unwanted uh, surveillance. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense, but even if you're going from your home in Maine or Seattle and you're popping out in, you know, Denver or Miami or something, you're at least, uh, that's a whole nother level of monitoring for someone to try to figure out who you are and what you're doing. Like it's not impossible, but it does. I mean, then you're getting into the NSA level per person, you know, targeting of an individual as opposed to the mass targeting. So what that gets you, and you still touch the public internet, as as you said, uh, but what that gets you is kind of like the Bugs Bunny version of the internet, right? You, you go, <laughs> you dig underground, and you tunnel somewhere, and then wherever you pop up, uh, you know, that's that's where the, the public uh, connection begins, and, and then you will go and connect to your final endpoint, uh, you know, from wherever you popped up. So it doesn't encrypt your traffic past the VPN provider, which is why... You need, you know, encryption on top of that. You need to use an encrypted uh, email protocol, for example. You need to use HTTPS in your web browsers, uh, you know, and, and whatever other software services you use, whether it's, you know, WhatsApp or, or Signal or what have you. So w- once you pop up from that tunnel, you want the rest of that data to be encrypted so that nobody can tell, you know, who it is connecting from that tunnel uh, over to your your provider, uh, that whole conversation is then protected. So it's a lot harder to track you. And most VPN providers also offer, you know, a number of different types of anti-tracking measures and anti-malware measures, which can help protect you from, you know, getting <laughs> infected or going to a malicious website. I, I got to like say, that. this reminds me, though, of um, one of the funniest things I think I ever saw in the X-Files was the episode with the lone gunman talking about reading the uh, smoking man's um, uh 
not novel, but long short fiction that was published in some magazine. And they're talking and he's, he's listening in on them and they say, Oh, let's go to the new encrypted, whatever. And they flip a button and it goes staticky and he hits another button. And then they're like, okay, we're good now. And he's listening to them again. And I thought that <laughs> was like, but that, you know, and that's, that is far fetched at one level, not at others. But that's where you get that. Like if somebody wants to track you down individually, um, they can still, they can still override some of these things, but most of the time you're not being tracked individually. 99.99999% of the time, uh, advertisers, governments, criminals are trying to collect behavior or extract specific information from a mass of information that they're gathering and trying to collate it. So even advertising, the fact is if you're using your browser and they think you're in Miami because that's where the VPN terminates, you're, you know, you're fouling their ability to target you with ads for Seattle or, or wherever as well. Right. So the VPN buys you obscurity uh, is a good way to put it, I think. Uh, and then the you know, encryption obviously underneath it will help protect uh, the rest of that data. If you're not encrypting, it doesn't really matter where that data is. I mean, yes, we collect in the U.S. The Snowden documents uh, obviously revealed that, but don't be surprised when we find out that we're collecting everywhere. Uh, you know, I, and I'm not, I don't have any special information, but I suspect that we're collecting in a lot of places that people probably don't realize we're collecting. Oh yeah. There's been so, some reports, but it's probably more sporadic. It's, it's probably less reliable, more sporadic and probably comes and goes um, when it's not totally under U.S. control where they don't have the leverage, but I don't know. There's only a few choke points in the world, despite how uh, disparate the internet is. Um, where does Tor fit into this? I just have a column uh, that went up at macworld.com about using anonymized browsing and Tor uses encryption to, um, as a tool to anonymize your browsing habits. But would you use Tor over a VPN as an extra way to, um, to reduce your traceability? You can if you like dial-up speeds. Um, <laughs> I, guess really, I know Tor is not known for speed. It's known for uh, helping anon- – and it's not a guarantee of anonymization. It's just an aid to anonymization as well. Right, right. And and it can help and it can hurt. And and a lot of people are kind of in the middle with this. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, it gets you another layer of anonymization uh, for anyone to get through in order to figure out, uh, you know, who you are. Unless, again – your exit node, you know, in, if you're not encrypting your data, your exit node has all of your data, and, and so does the public internet. So you've still got to approach it in, in terms of layers and use the proper encryption. But it, it does get you that layer of anonymity. It also, to some degree, you know, can paint a target on you. Uh, you know, you're coming out of a Tor exit node. I mean, for one thing, a number of websites are going to, they're already filtering, giving you extra captures, uh, making your life m- miserable just for using Tor because they can't even tell if you are a threat or if you're just some, some guy looking to, you know, use Tor. So, you know, there's, there's the usability perspective of it. Uh, you know, there's, there's also just, uh, you know, and it depends what you do on Tor. There's, there's the perception at least by law enforcement. I'm not going to speak to how accurate it is, but there's a perception by law enforcement that if you're on tour, that you're doing bad things and that you are a criminal. So being on tour, having an, an IP uh, coming out of an exit node, uh, you know, to some degree, paints target on you. And we already know that our government has heavily invested in having tour exit node servers out there. So in all likelihood, it's possible. Now, it may be more encrypted. It, it may be privatized through a VPN, um, but it's possible that you may still be coming out of some government-owned exit node that's being used for collection. 
which makes it much more critical that you've got your A game uh, on the rest of your network packets. You know that you're encrypting it. That uh, you know, and, and when we get to talking about like Signal and WhatsApp, that you know who you're talking to because you've got the right key exchange. Uh, and that there's not, you know, a man in the middle occurring or that, you know, keys haven't been swapped out on you, for example. Uh, you know, so you've, you've really got to be on your A-game, in my opinion, to be able to safely use Tor. And even if you are encrypting all your traffic and doing all the right things, you know, as we've seen with, with like play, the Playpen website, for example, uh, there are still uh, attacks that are... Uh, are operations that are are launched uh, against particular dark websites, against uh, you know in general targeting Tor users, uh, you know to attempt to you know get code execution on your system essentially and, mm-hmm. and cloak you. So it it adds another layer, but it's one of those things. Glenn, I think you know if you don't know what you're doing, that false sense of security almost puts you in harm's way. That's an excellent, uh, excellent thing. It's true with all of this too. Is that it's not the none of this is perfect. They're just ways to add layers uh, or to. I mean, you know, you can't say like someone could say, "Well, iMessage offers perfect encryption, right?" Like no one could ever crack that. It's like, well, uh, there's all kinds of problems with that statement. It's just it re- it dramatically increases the difficulty. It might make it impossible. But um, it, nothing's a sure thing. So, um, you know, as you say, like using Tor might help you in one respect and paint a target in another. So you have to be more careful when you're using it in order to avoid um, calling attention to the specific thing you're doing. I mean, a lot of people use Tor just to avoid being tracked um, routinely as opposed to uh, for um, – you know, for uh, not even nefarious, but for, pro, you know, researching activism or researching uh, information that a government might not want them to be looking at or, or what have you. Um, I was uh, thinking the other day about uh, I just actually there's a column up recently, too. We just ran a bunch of my security columns that are about protecting yourself from various threats and about super cookies and ever cookies. And one of the things I come back to is that. If you use private browsing in a in your own browser, um, private browsing mode in Safari is actually highly resistant to persistent cookie tracking. Like um, that's the one mode. If you can use that for browsing where you're concerned about being tracking, everything else is problematic. So it's interesting how something it's not low tech, but as straightforward as that can protect you against um, uh, you know uh, uh, cookies that will never go away. The ever cookie because they're cached all over your system. Um, in the same way, like Tor doesn't solve all the problems of anonymity, but they does help you in a surprising way, like not be directly tracked by uh, commercial entities, at least. It's not necessarily a government solution. Let, let's finish with one other thing, though, because uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you have opinions about Touch ID. I think we even talked to him, uh, talked about this a bit the last time you were on the podcast, but has your opinion changed about it? Do you have thoughts um, within the current generation of technology and threats about whether people should use Touch ID or not use Touch ID or how they should, uh, how and when they should enable it? <laughs> I, I I'm gonna default to the uh, uh, depends on your threat model. Uh, exactly. Uh, well, a lot, no, of I, talk, I, a lot of what we're talking about is like the is the I'm a normal per, I'm an average person. I'm not an activist, but I'm concerned about. I mean, I'm not a dissident. I'm not an activist, but I'm concerned about. Un, as opposed to the uh, government has a target painted on me because I did X, and so I know I'm probably being watched. So those are I mean those are two very extreme different um, threat models. 
there, there's a good balance with Touch ID on the desktop uh, with the new MacBooks, and I like that a lot better than I like the Touch ID on the phone. Mm, so. Mm-hmm. One of the neat things you can do uh, is change your sleep settings. Uh, And there are a couple different sleep setting options. One will allow your system to sleep after, let's say, two minutes or five minutes instead of, I think it's a couple hours or something like that, right, by default. I forget what it is. But Mm -hmm. you you can change it to just a couple minutes. Um, So uh, let's say you lock your machine. Uh, and, uh, you know, close the lid, uh, after that five minutes expires, your system can go to sleep. Uh, there is another setting that can change your sleep settings so that your system will, uh, disable the power to your memory. It will, uh, discard your, uh, file vault keys and essentially lock down your notebooks so that it's almost as if you did a fresh boot, uh, when you wake that computer back up. And you can't use Touch ID until you authenticate again with your password. So how this works for me is I've used the the Touch Bar. I've I've configured the Touch Bar, gotten rid of the the Siri button on there because I just kept hitting it on accident. <laughs> and uh, I replaced it with I've got two buttons. One is a screen lock button, and one is a sleep button. Uh, the screen lock button, while it's plugged in, is just a screen lock. So, you know, if I'm nearby and I just want to lock my screen because that's what I do, I can lock it and I can use Touch ID to unlock it. Um, if I am in, you know, let's say someone bangs on the door, if I'm a political dissident or I'm concerned about, you know, whatever government surveillance, someone I don't know knocks on the door, I might hit the sleep button, go run, check the door. Uh, after two minutes or five minutes, that whole system is going to lock down. Uh, so let's say it is the Gestapo at your front door. Uh, your laptop is automatically going to discard those file vault keys and uh, you know power off the, the uh, power to the RAM, uh, which thwarts cold boot attacks and lock itself down. You know in a way that I can't just be forced to stick my finger on it uh, later on. Mm-hmm. So it's very convenient. <laughs> If I need to run to the bathroom or if I'm going to go get a coffee or if I just don't care about someone banging down my door, um, then I can just hit lock. And as long as it's plugged in, it's not going to go to sleep the way I've got it set up. Or, you know, if, uh, if I ever get concerned, like let's say I'm, you know, uh, out in public and I don't, you know, particularly want my data, you know, at risk, I could just hit the sleep button and instantly that, you know, machine will be ready to lock itself down after just a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more convenient, uh, you know, without without risking that 48-hour period. Like if your phone gets seized by, you know, the government uh, and they get a warrant instantly for your fingerprint, you're kind of out of luck unless you're counting on them powering down the phone or doing something dumb, right. which I wouldn't put past <laughs> them. Uh, <laughs> they have done that uh, yeah. a few times. Yeah. It uh, has been known to happen. Um, but, um, you know, you're kind of out of luck at that point that that phone will unlock with your fingerprint for probably 48 hours with a couple of weird little exceptions in there. So, you know, I, I think Apple's, Apple's definitely made it easier to take advantage of touch ID uh, and I use it as well for Apple Pay, which makes it really convenient. Um, mm-hmm. You know, on the desktop, I don't think you have the same risks that you do on your mobile device. And you know, maybe in the in the future, maybe we'll see some of those. Obviously, not sleep options; they'll be presented in some different form, I would think. But maybe there there will be some other way to lock down your phone. Uh, you know, in, in a similar fashion. 
but um, you know, it, it really does come down to, and I hate to to say what's your threat model, you know, but it, if you're a political dissident, if you are a target, you know, a CEO or um, a diplomat, <clears throat> you probably shouldn't be using uh, Touch ID on your phone, on your desktop, maybe if you if you get someone to configure it right. But if you're the average Joe uh, and you're not worried about those sorts of things, no one's going to come banging down your door. Uh, you know, it's a convenient feature. It makes life a lot easier. It prevents other people from watching you type in your password. So mm-hmm. there's a, a security in that. Uh, you know, it's really one of those decisions I think is kind of a, you know, on a, a personal basis, like like whether you use Tor or not, really. Um, it, it, it also depends, you know, on your, your level of technical expertise. I will say one other thing about Tor real quick, Glenn. Oh, if yeah. you're going to use it, you've got to use it constantly. You can't just use it when you feel right, like it. Right. If someone's tracking you, uh, we've seen court documents where they they can easily cross-reference your time on Tor at your house with events that they've linked you to going online somewhere. So that it, it, you've you've really got to be smarter about it if you're going to use Tor and, and you know be be dedicated to it and kind of own that as your this is my dial-up connection and I love it. Yeah, uh, and I should point out too, uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, has um, guides for both individuals, or they have guides for individuals, they have advice for journalists as well, um, and there's the Committee to Protect Journalists, uh, which is a great group that has extensive advice on how journalists should um, should work to protect their data, especially while traveling in countries that are not their own or in areas which it's known that uh, you know government may arbitrarily seize information um so yeah you know we close this episode by saying it's uh this you don't need to prepare (laughs) none of this is about preparing for entering a dictatorship um we're already in an era in which mass surveillance is common we're already in an era in which criminals are constantly trying to penetrate our um defenses or um through proxies like phishing or other kinds of attacks uh through through the internet of things our devices all around us we are we're in a place in which um it's easy to freak out sometimes i tell people about some of these things they're like oh my god how am i going to sleep when i know that whatever i'm like well we're in that state like the fact is um you're every day you're already in that place so it's more like becoming educated to reduce as you were talking about before uh with say little snitch uh, or little flocker is that we're reducing the surface area of attack you're making yourself less and less vulnerable the less surface area there is no matter what your threat model is if you're just an average citizen who has no political opinions never travels beyond the borders of your country and uh, uh only uh, engages in legal transactions of all kinds then um you know can Conceivably, you still get a benefit by having less of yourself exposed uh, to criminals or to um, mass surveillance that might falsely identify you of something because of how the filters and things are set up. So we're in that age. Got to get used to it. Um, uh, we left Eden long ago. Eden had no wiretapping from what I can tell. But I don't know. I mean, God didn't know when the apple was eaten. So you got to say he wasn't surveilling them. He wasn't asked. <laughs> yeah, I got to hand it to Apple, though. I mean, they've taken a lot of these really complex technologies and they've made it accessible to a 16-year-old kid, which I think is really oh, great. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. And uh, my kids are actually pretty hip about I'm surprised how much uh, they do some you know in-school education about uh, online risk, but I'm surprised how savvy they are about um, 
they'll they'll discuss something and they'll say like, well, we never trust that. They don't. We don't really watch live TV at all. So whenever they see an ad, like they are, it's so weird to watch them watch ads. And the same thing, they have a little more native scrutiny because they haven't been bar- bombarded with advertisements their whole lives. So they'll see something online. They'll say, this is too good to be true. Nah, they're lying. I mean, they'll just say that is a lie. And I'm like, yay, hooray! And that doesn't mean they'll be you know resistant to everything, but it's nice to know they have um, more credulity because of that. Um, I, I grew up watching tons of TV and all I know is, uh, you know, Gilligan wasn't a really good, uh, sailor. That's all I know. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and talking about all this stuff. This is great to have you on. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. And I was talking to Jonathan Zajarski, who's the developer of Little Flocker. You can find out more about Little Flocker at his website, which is, uh, simply, what is your website? For Little Flocker. It is littleflocker.com, correct? Little Dot Flocker. Com, yeah. That's F L. I didn't use my last name in there because I wanted people to actually find <laughs> it. Spell, it's, it's spelled, as we know from Barney Miller, it's spelled just the way it sounds, Zajarski. Um, so uh, thanks for being on. And uh, th- I've been Glenn Fleischman and I remain Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. You can find us at macworld.com. You can write us podcast at macworld.com. Go to facebook.com slash macworld where you can comment on stories. Uh, if you don't do uh, the social network thing, you know, we do have the email, as I say, so you can email us with stuff. And uh, this has been episode 542 for January 18th, 2017. We'll be back next week. Susie will be back refreshed from her vacation and I'm sure there'll be uh, exciting news in the doldrums of January to discuss. So thanks for listening and talk to you next week.